Good afternoon. You have joined the Executive Girlfriends Group, and it is Friday, September 12, 2014. And this is the second show of our new season for this year. And our guest today is Charlotte Beers. Charlotte, welcome. Thank you. I Charlotte, couldn't resist I'd like to... having a conversation with anyone named Chicky. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Well, you know, when I was young, uh, I, I actually, uh, my mother started calling me Chicky when I was uh, just within days of birth, and she had a song that she sang with me, which I won't bore you uh, with that right now, but I ended up having it legally changed when I was 17, and the only thing I wondered is how I would feel about it when I was a grandmother, and now I've got uh, two grandchildren. And now from- you know. Yes, from an adopted daughter, and it it has just been so much fun. And my 16-year-old daughter calls me her chicky mommy, which I, oh, I love that. So good. But the cool thing in business is nobody ever forgets it. And when I got married, I didn't have to hyphenate my name, so I, I always right. thought of that as a bonus. <laughs> okay, Charlotte, why don't we dig in um, before we start talking about your most recent book, let's talk about you and, and what you did before you decided to become an author. Uh, right. Well, I think um, I had this wonderful early start. I underestimated its potency. I became a um, consumer research person for Uncle Ben's rice, and then I got to take part in inventing Uncle Ben's long grain and wild rice, which I can still describe in infinite, exquisitely boring (laughs) detail. But I learned there the basics of marketing, among which and from whom are some of the finest marketers in the world with the Mars Brothers uh, group. And and got to be actually chosen to be one of the first brand managers when that word was new and the idea of encompassing a brand all by yourself was a new idea. Then I was lured by the ad world. It was so much fun to walk into that arena because I used to say I never knew what time it was after I started in advertising, which I think is a signal that you found your place. That's Definitely. not true of everyone. Some people couldn't <laughs> wait to get out of that business. And after many years in advertising, first with what they called the University of Advertising, Thompson, I went to a smaller company and got tested very much as a CEO. Then that allowed me to have the courage, if not quite the equipment, to become chairman and CEO of Ogilvy, which was 8,000 people, 5 wow. billion, and, and failing. And, and my chance to show that I was um, a talented change agent. But, of course, I was surrounded by extremely remarkable people. Then I thought I was done. Uh, <laughs> I had a stint as chairman of J. Walter Thompson, which was my old company. Right. And I knew Colin Powell because he and I were on a board together. And when he became Secretary Powell, he asked me to come and be Undersecretary of State. And that was not an assignment I could turn down. And no so, kidding. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine be, saying no to him anyway, but No, but, no, wow. it's not easy to say no to Powell. But anyway, it, it happened that he and I served our time. He had many other years of service. But I served my time um, between Afghanistan and Iraq. So my learning curve was off the charts, and I don't remember sleeping much. And after <laughs> wow. that, I thought I would – that must have been about my third retirement or fourth I came back sort of into the world, and I saw that women whom I had left in immensely good shape hadn't moved up the ladder and had Mm. these 
increasing influence that I, I assumed was a no-brainer. And so it, it actually drove me crazy. I read a book written by a man about all the wonderful things men can do, and it just rang my bell. So I decided I would write a book that could offer shortcuts to women as they make their way into the world that's still run by men. And right. I don't think the problem is the men. I think it's how we learn to see women as leaders. So that's what that book's about. I oh, I, I would definitely agree with that. And we have talked about uh, that uh, kind of ad nauseum on the Executive Girlfriends group. But your book is called I'd Rather Be in Charge, A Legendary Business Leader's Roadmap for Achieving Pride, Power, and Joy at Work. And it's funny because I, I've been writing a blog uh, over the last couple of weeks about uh, the alphabet soup of success. And I actually oh. just got to J this week, and I picked joy as, as one of the words for uh, one of the I things. I know. It's not a word we, we use, right? We don't expect it's to not. have a good time, but it's extremely painful to spend all those years if you're not having a good time. So. Well, it is, and I think it's really interesting that you went back and looked at companies that you had led and women that you had nurtured, I am sure, while you were there, and that they hadn't. Mm -hmm. uh, taking that next step. So uh, I'm sure we're going to dive into that as, as we dive into the book a little bit. But I, I want to start, uh, you have a framework for the book that, uh, that I absolutely love, where you break out the, the personal elements that you need to look at, your environment, the messages, uh, which you just alluded to, how you learn to engage, the traits that you need and finding that stranger within, and then self-portrait, who you think you are. So why don't we start with that? And I, I know that that's a mouthful because it's about the first 100 pages of the book. But, but let's talk about the personal side because that's one of the things that the Executive Girlfriends Group that we really stress is yeah, that people good. who participate in this group have to be the whole you. You can't just be the public you. Well, to me, this was like the missing piece. Um, so us women, we're trained by the men around us by, indirectly. And then sometimes we're trained by the one woman we know who made it to the top, and she's usually hard to be with because she's learned all the dirty tricks, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily what's unique uh, about one another. So who do we have to turn to? And and one of the things that's extremely surprising when you come back after I did is to find out that the environment is cluttered with these expectations about women need to be womanly. And it just drove me crazy at the, at the expense of being a word I made up, leaderly. So <laughs> that, that environment is toxic, you know, and it's not yeah. anyone's fault. It's just so prominent that even today, if I list some adjectives for women that I'm teaching, nice and team player and all those, those are way off the charts. And it isn't that they're negative. You want your friends to be like that. But when you're talking about work, if you're being a team player at the expense of stepping out there and saying, I'll do it, they're not going to choose you. Ugh. Right. So the personal starts with the fact that there's an environment there that you need to see. That's fog. The second part of that personal game is you have to know who you are. Oh, this is so difficult. You go to work so you don't have to deal with that. <laughs> right. And right. then all of a sudden, work, instead of being this objective meritocracy, becomes emotional, irrational, 
moments of competition and ruthlessness that you're not prepared for. And men compete differently than women. No, totally. So you're thrown into these things which you thought were at home but weren't necessarily at work. So then you have to work out in your personality and your designation of roles who you are at work versus who you are at home because these things can be confusing. And then if you're lucky, you, you're like me, you get a crisis where you have to deal with who you are as an individual in relationships at work, not just the work, because most of the women that I'm lucky enough to meet have really nailed the work. It's the relationships that can confuse. The higher you go up the ladder, the less clear and fair-minded the relationships are. So I found a way, my own way, and then I've tested it with other women about how to track down this personal interior inventory. And and it's, it's easier to do if you do it with a group of people, but I admit. But it, you have to begin somewhere. And one of the things that we need to understand is what is the trait or traits in us, inherent in us, beyond the education and the resume that will that will predict how we react, what we care about, what gives us meaning. And then when you know that, you can tell someone else and all of a sudden they'll see that in you instead of wondering who you are. So tell me why, why you uh, refer to that as the stranger within. Because nobody knows this. No one knows this. You give any of the best women in the world a chance, we'll hide behind our charts, our resume. Resumes are designed to tell nothing of any real interest. Uh, interviews are a, a strategy where you both hide from each other the real anxiety, truth, fears, doubts, excitement. And if a, if a, if a woman in particular hasn't been invited to say, where, where and when is it that I am fierce, and strong, then she won't know how to activate that. So to me, that's the person you meet first. It's who is that? And work for a long time does not encourage you to do that, nor, nor does education, because women outperform men in educational institutions. So they think, this isn't hard. Then they go to work. They outwork the men. They think, this isn't hard. And then one day, they're not chosen to lead something, and the man is a no-brainer to be chosen. And then they say, right. well, what's the variable here? So the variable is, who am I from the inside out? When I need to step out and out of the team in front of the group, what kind of bravery, fortitude, tensile strength do I have to call on? Everybody has some. It's just different for each of us. So as, as you move into the public section of the book, you start off uh, with a section called The Roadshow, who mm-hmm. they think you are. Yeah. And I'm presuming that that then gets turned around by bringing in who you now know that you are. You've found that stranger within. Well, the, that's a lifelong job, right? I'm trying to present who I am once I discover it. And every right. day you have that third person in your head watching you, so you don't overwhelm yourself with that knowledge right away. I mean, today I can still horrify myself by watching myself occasionally and thinking, where did she come from? <laughs> but you do then have an understanding that people think of you differently, that you've now grown to see yourself more clearly. Now the trick is what's the gap between who you are and how you see yourself and how they see you. 
And it's wonderful to have some examples I've had from my long life of watching people assume they are coming across a certain way and knowing what the audience is, uh, the people that they're speaking to are really thinking. The bigger that gap, the less likely you are going to be to have influence. And influence is really nice to have. It's, it right. gives your life meaning. Well, the next section you, you talk about relationships and you use the term your delivery system. And I think what you just described to us is that the way we deliver ourselves um, or, or our ideas or whatever it is that we object to and what we're seeing happening around us, which, you know, that's what happened to me in corporate America. I just could not stand the status quo. And so I was always the contrarian who didn't like anything around me. And and then I realized I could make $7,000 a day being a consultant and going in and making the same observations, showing oh, people how wow. to fix it, and actually – Because no one know, else would, right? Right. And so then I built a multimillion-dollar consulting business. And Oh, uh, I love that story. I wish I could write it. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear more about that myself because I think – Sometimes we have to show the victory is in being a contrarian. Yes. And it's, it's often in certain kinds of giant corporations that's squished out. I remember when I used to tell Proctor, you fire all the mavericks, so now you're all so agreeable, nothing new takes place. Exactly. Um, and that was a long time ago. Well, and I just stuff. picked a different word, Charlotte. I, I didn't pick contrarian. I picked iconoclast. Yeah, because, better word. You know, yeah, the status quo buster, you know, that's really what I want to be. Also, that suggests an area of innovation, and that um, innovation is not at all as glamorous as it sounds because somebody is always going to be made uncomfortable right? with that. But um, what I learned is that women think they are the work. So the delivery system is, well, that's my report. And I say, no, no, the report is just a symptom of who you are. Right. And even though we had done all this homework time after time in my big, deep classes, the women would make presentations to one another, very abbreviated ones, and then they had to admit that they knew nothing about that individual when she sat down. <clears throat> and, in, and in truth, every time you open your mouth or take a pen or have a dialogue, you, you should be uh, focused on presenting yourself. And, the, and you can't do that unless you know <clears throat> who you are and what you'd like to convey. This is not easy. We, we are right. trained to be uh, timid, to be, to be neutral, to be a team member, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not nearly good enough to say, look, this is who I am, this is what I believe, I'm going. Right, and, and we are trained to be apologetic as well. Oh. Well, you know, there's a wonderful line, I, I don't know who gave it to me, that women smi smile at the office six times more than men. <laughs> and I think that makes me feel like a giddy fool. Right. Um, and I, I don't care about that very much. I'm just, I just see it as a suggestion that we're accommodating to our disadvantage sometimes. Right. Well, so you move on and, and talk in-depth about communication. Yeah. And yeah. in this section, you, you use the term, I hear you, because mm -hmm. we, we do talk and we don't listen. And we, if we are listening, it's so that we can interject the next thing that we want to say. 
And and people do that to us as well. So it's yeah. no wonder that communication is in the state that it is, both, well, I'm really both corporately worried. and I, personally. Yeah. I mean, today, since everybody's reduced their communication to a mountain of meaningless elorm data, they have also reduced their real discussions with one another to sentences and where they are. Uh, this is going to become more acute. But I think this is one of my best chapters because I unabashedly stole all the secrets of powerful advertising and converted it to our use because it's not what you say, it's what they hear. So the tricks and the discipline behind that really are something each of us can learn. And so the ones who say to me, well, I'm not a great communicator, I have to say to them it's unacceptable. Right. You don't have to be slick, you don't have to be glib, but you do have to say who you are. And you have to find a vocabulary that's very hearable. And you can't do that unless you know something very significant about the audience you're speaking with. So one of our key methods of communicating are presentations. Right. And I recently uh, went on a uh or, I'm sorry, I was going to say a uh, PowerPoint fast. I have given up <laughs> PowerPoint to the degree that I am allowed to. I still have to do PowerPoints for my clients. But uh, for myself, I have moved to a presentation format um, using a product called uh, PictoChart, which is it's all pictures and, and oh, beautiful things. Oh, what a nice things. idea. I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh, great. I'll have to show it to you. It's so amazing. But in this section, you talk about informing people, asking them, uh, you know, making the ask, and then confronting them with, you know, needing to make a decision or, or to mm -hmm. react. And so talk to us about that because, again, I think we got in such a rut in corporate America, and it was a PowerPoint rut. You know, if, yeah, it, if, it, if it could be put in bullet points, then you didn't well, besides, have to really you know, know your now, material. Now you can make such beautiful PowerPoints, and my position is they completely deflect the ability of you to emerge as a player in the room. So if you yes. have the right to conclude the information, to interpret it, and to draw inferences, you might as well stay home. So it's interesting, but men are better at that by instinct than women. They're not better at doing it. They just know it should be done. So a man will say, let me tell you where that leaves us, uh, because he learned it from a coach. I don't know where they learn this stuff. Right. But for women, we're inclined to let people draw their own conclusions. So this is deadly, you know. I don't want you drawing your own conclusion. I want to at least guide you down the Right. <laughs> so I talk about putting one word on a chart and then standing in front of it all the time and then occasionally revealing what that word means. And all that time there's a little suspense being built. And I also urge women to break the jargon that's used in anyone's business because we we find that comforting, you know, oh, yes, I know all the insider language. But the truth is very little is communicated like that of who you are. Right. So I don't recommend it widely, but I call my clients darling, and, and it, was, it, was for, it was for fun. And I, I got a big joke, kick out of this. David Ogilvy was, you know, I went to call on him before I was hired by Ogilvy, even though he was out of the business. 
And he called a friend of mine. He said, she really likes me. And Tom said, why? And he said, she called me darling. And he said, oh, she calls everybody darling. <laughs> so you you have a style. You know, you need to cultivate a style. Sometimes it's, it's style right. free to be your style. But these are all part of developing the brand, which um, I think has been kind of misconstrued into some simplistic game. But I like it so much when I hear something and it makes me think of someone because they're so distinctive that you associate them with word, a voice tone, a manner. And and this is what that original way of communicating is the next step to real communication because you're telling right. people who you are. Right. Well, and, and really telling a story. And I learned how to uh, give keynote speeches and, and presentations from a guy who uh, was my boss at American Airlines Sabre. Mm-hmm. And I had done his presentations for him because back in 1984, I was the first Macintosh user oh uh, gosh, at American Airlines. Yeah. yeah, and so I could do these beautiful presentations for him, and everybody else was doing, you know, stuff I got, I don't know, mimeograph machines or something, because <laughs> the PC didn't even exist at that point. But he had just such a beautiful delivery, and, and he was so comfortable with his material that all he really did need were pictures. Yeah. And so I learned that back then and, and mm-hmm. you know, had the benefit and the of picture is a, And the picture, yeah. I love this idea of you're talking about where pic charts or whatever it is, because the picture allows a thousand interpretations. It doesn't talk you to death right? Um, so that you have a rigid road to run down. I remember that the secret for me in speeches, because now I'm on the road all the time, but I'll never forget the first time I gave a talk. A friend of mine said, who is that up there? So (laughs) I I clearly wasn't uh, very exciting. And then one day I shoved myself away from the podium and told a story about something to illustrate something, and I found my way. I found how to let go of the podium, and that's what we all had to do. Right. Right. And, again, I was really fortunate to learn that early on. And if you don't have a great mentor uh, in those presentation and communication skills, at the at the same time I had him, uh, you know, I had a woman that I reported to who had a very, very oppressive boss. And so she mm-hmm. didn't mentor and she really it wasn't that she chose not to she didn't didn't have have the model um you know so having that model and and this the next section of your book is about being in charge and when to take the lead and how to take the lead and again back to the personal section of how we learn to engage um you know learning to step forward and lead is not always easy for women Mm -hmm. and and again whether it's fear or yeah, Chicky, I think mm-hmm. it's not really easy for men. More, you know, 8,000 people reported to me technically at, at Ogilvy. Of course, you interact with a few. But very few of the men I worked with were going to lead in the, in the comprehensive sense. But in any – so it's not just female-male. There is this uh, combination of talents and spirit and energy and will and sometimes greed. But um, – what does happen that fascinates me is every single day in your experience, 
you can take a moment of leadership, and it, they come all the time. I remember teaching my own class at Harvard. There's a business class there on on my uh, turnaround, our, our turnaround at Ogilvy, and a guy asked me in the class, well, how will I know when it's a moment of leadership? And I said, you'll feel really uncomfortable <laughs> because you're stepping out. You know, you're way over here, and you're saying, I disagree, or I you're, you're, you're being what you were earlier, a contrarian. But it's not always like that. Sometimes you sweep everybody up into a direction that they hadn't thought of. And right. the trick is, once you have the nerve and the courage and you know you're standing out there alone, the, the definition of that is there's no proof that you're right. That's leading. Right. If there's proof, well, you're just part of a good managing group. Right, right, exactly. Now, the last chapter of the book is about context and, oh, and where yeah. you are. And, and I, I am presuming, because I haven't gotten to that part of the book, that this is, is really being able to take stock and figuring out what the next step is. Well, I think um, it's not that so much, although there's nothing wrong with that, and we, we, uh, we need to almost do that every day. W- what interests me is is that you understand something that's never taught in uh, business schools. All day long you do things, you manage things, and you lead. So all three of those cycles happen to you in one day, maybe one day, even though you're the CEO, you have to do something yourself all day. Like I had to write a description of the vision for Ogilvy. I worked on it for weeks all by myself, so I was the doer. Then I tried desperately to sell everybody else on it, so I wasn't even the winner at that stage. So leading, I had few chances to lead. Now, one day saying this is what we're going to do, that's a moment of leadership. But if you're aware of what is asked of you when you're doing, when you're managing, you're making decisions, you're doing strategy, you're guiding people, you're creating the environment in which the best work goes forward. That's what managers do. It's elegant. But if you're not managing and you, and you have an idea or a position or a point of view, but you cannot prove it to anyone and you're going to have to turn and persuade them, that's leading. And you have to know which these three categories you're in so you know which assets of yours you will activate. That's what I mean by context. Got it, got it. Well, I love it that at the end of the book, you you talk about how, as your book is closing, the new chapter of the reader's story is actually opening, and that if you've done your job right in laying all of this out, that the reader is beginning their own journey to experience oh, the pleasures so. and challenges of yeah. taking charge of their work life. And I, I just love that because it, it sets the reader up for actually getting serious about what they just read rather than being entertained uh, you know, know, by a well-written for, book. You know, for instance, I had somebody write me and say, I, I, I think your book was worth the price because of all the tips you put in about how to make presentations. And I thought, well, I'm glad, but I, I would have called this book if the publisher had let me. I'd rather you be in charge. Because that's my goal is, is, you know, I've already done this. And, um, and passing along 
something people can use. The first thing you have to do, Chicky, I know you know this. The first thing you have to do is take out uh, things that are unique to you because what good is that going to do anybody? You know, right. like I, I uh, certain a- aspects I have a very Texas informality. That's not transferable and even maybe not recommended. But once you get past that, you say, yeah, but what can somebody use in this story? Then I have something in the book somebody else can can use. One of the things I learned that surprised me is I debated for some time about whether or not to put in this book the story of this man who was my brand-new client, and I end up through a series of dumbness on my part the same night I met him in his hotel suite. And he throws me down on the bed. I mean, this is like a bad movie. Oh, and, no. And I debated whether to put that story in because in the world in which we live now, that's very improbable. But what happened is everywhere I got notes from women saying that vulnerability that series of assumptions I made, they have replicated, even today and now. So the the point of the story is really what do you do about it when right. somebody's crossed that line and you still have to manage it because you're the leader. So um, I learned so much from what people use the book for. I'd probably write a totally different book now. <laughs> In wow. fact, that's what I'm working on is breaking all this and more down into small edible pieces so that people can take it as they will, which is I noticed in one of my in-depth classes that the women were taking notes like crazy, and they have the book. They've studied it. We've been on it. And I said, what are you writing? And they said, well, <laughs> I use different things from this story than you talk about. Right. Because they're going to apply it differently, Right. Absolutely. In fact, one of uh, one of our board members who also happens to be an author, we took one of her books that I had written copious things in, in the margins, and we yeah. actually created a workbook that went with oh, the book I know. What to question idea. people about what they were taking away from each section. And I, I, I think that uh, uh, many publishers miss a great opportunity to have workbooks. Well, people have asked me to do that, but my new idea is to create a dialogue, and I'll have to agree to do it on the Internet. I'll have to get a, a membership. Right. And I'm going to take break these larger issues and experiences into smaller ones that somebody can – and then give a story that I've had to experience right. it, then a story – that someone else has taught me that of uh, the way they used it, and then that's going to go out on a regular basis to people because I think people digest usable information like that now. Oh, I, I would totally agree with that. I think that there, there really is such room for true mentoring uh, that yeah, comes out of that way. because mentoring is relationship, and it's building on all kinds of experiences, both of the mentor and the mentee. Because mm-hmm. I know every time I'm mentoring someone, I get as much out of it as they do, and, and it's you know that's the way the process is supposed to work. Well, I think what they do is they provoke you into using aspects of your experience you'd completely forgotten about. Yes. But, you know, I think that word is really misused, so I've gotten a little allergic to it. Um, I 
for instance, I think that when people ask me, as they do all the time, who were who your best mentors, I say people who called gave me a hard time. <laughs> people who crossed me, people who defied me, people who right. showed me what dirty tricks look like. Those lessons strengthened me in the long run. Um, of course I had people who said, you know, I think you can do anything. Uh, and I didn't quite believe them, and I don't think I did do just anything. But but I I don't particularly, as far as this idea, and I've been re- keeping up with this because Harvard's working on it, this idea that someone big in the company is assigned to you to shepherd you along, has it has some good things because you get share of mind. But the disadvantage is there's always this artificial environment that it creates where people wonder what you can do what you do without this guy helping. Right. Right. Well I'm I'm actually in search of a new word too because I you know, I've been trying to seek out a group that I could participate in. I don't like the word mastermind group. It, yeah. it just implies a, a set of, of uh, belief systems so that, that aren't in line with mine. Yeah. And uh, I, would, I would agree that some of these terms have been used and abused, so um, perhaps we can find one together. I know. We'll go on the hunt. The vocabulary <laughs> is open for uh, that kind of thing. Right. Well, Charlotte, this has been just terrific. And uh, for those who have been listening, Charlotte's book is I'd Rather Be in Charge, a Legendary Business Leader's Roadmap for Achieving Pride, Power, and Joy at Work. And I know we can all use a whole lot more joy in every area of our life. And if we have it at work, it tends to spill over. Uh, again, our guest today was Charlotte Beers. Charlotte, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for giving up your, your Friday afternoon. Where do you live, Charlotte? I forgot to even ask I, you. I live in Charleston, in South Carolina. I live in New York. But I'm just very honored to be with the executive women. I like the whole concept. So thank you for having me, Chief. Uh, well, thank you so much. Let me end uh, the recorded portion of the call, and we'll catch up on a couple of other things. Again, thank you for joining the Executive Girlfriends Group. You can find more out about the group at www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We have a public page on Facebook, and then if you join the Executive Girlfriends Group, we do have a private group that you will be invited to where you'll be given all of the information about our upcoming events. Thanks so much for joining us, and this ends the recorded portion of the call.